It is a great day today. We're tickled, thrilled to death that y'all are here. Um, God's got you here for a reason. I want to welcome y'all here. If it's the first time that you've uh, worshipped with us at Church on the Trail, a special welcome to y'all, the people that are watching online. You know, we welcome y'all here as well. And I do this every Sunday. And if this is your first time or if you've never gotten a little welcome kit from us, Elliot and Katie Long are standing here. Just raise your hand. We want to get this in your hand and it'll kind of give you a little bit of the DNA of our church family and where we are and some of the different ministries and so forth. So if you need that, just raise your hand. I've got a couple of <clears throat> small announcements that they didn't go over in the video. Um, one of those is we were supposed to have a, a volunteer appreciation um, gala thingy last night, yesterday, and you noticed that we rescheduled that. Thank goodness we did because I think right around this particular area, the winds were about 75 miles an hour, so it was probably a good thing that we moved that, and we moved that to February 1st, and I want to say one more thing about that. When we first announced it, it said that it was a formal event. I want you to know that for us, formal doesn't mean a tuxedo. Maybe for some people it does, but for our church family, it doesn't mean that. All we're really saying is it's an opportunity to dress up. If you want to wear a coat and tie, wear a coat and tie. If you want to pair, wear a pair of khakis and a shirt like this, then that's fine, but it's just a time where we want to honor <clears throat> and celebrate all the people that serve uh, in our church. And then if anybody has any interest in serving, really it's just open for everybody to be here. So that, again, that's February 1st, number one. Number two is this. We're, we are launching a new ministry called Joyful Hearts. And it's a partnership that we have, um, have, have kind of created with the Oaks at Grove Park, which is an assisted living center. And Autumn Morgan and I visited with them, I don't know, two or three weeks ago probably. And they want us to come over and do a Bible study with the residents there, just love on the residents there. And so that's a new ministry that's going to be launching in February, February 9th. Uh, Patty Freeman is heading up that ministry. And so if you have any interest in doing that, and we hope that you do, that you'll, you know, email uh, info at Church on the Trail or see or see Patty. That's going to be a really, really cool ministry. And so there's that, uh, and it kind of is coming alongside of our Generations Ministry, which is a foster care prevention ministry, and uh, the street ministry, M2540. So we would encourage y'all to get involved in one of those things. So now, look, we're in week two uh, of a new series uh, called Not a Fan. You saw that a minute ago. Doesn't that, that music just get you fired up? 
in preparation for the game tomorrow night. How many people think that LSU is going to destroy Clemson? Uh, how many of y'all think Clemson's going to win? Both of those were sort of weak responses. Um, I digress. We're in week two of a series called Not a Fan, where we're, we're looking at <coughs> comparing kind of, um, and I made up a couple words last week, fanness on one hand and followerness on another hand. And we're opening up, at least we did last week, a discussion about the fact that Jesus is really not looking for more fans. He's looking for followers. And last week, we dug into a man into the text in John, in the Apostle John's Gospel, uh, a man named Nicodemus. And John talks about him in chapter 3 and chapter 7 and, and a little bit in chapter 19. And particularly, uh, he's talking about his relationship. John is talking about Nicodemus's relationship um, with, uh, with Jesus, and at the end of the day, that that relationship with Jesus was going to interfere with his comfort level. It was going to interfere with his comfortable life, the comfortable, comfortable life that Nicodemus was living. And, and the reality is, is Jesus is going to interfere, a relationship with him, it is going to interfere with your comfort level. It, it's going to affect your comfort level. We had four takeaways last week from last week's message. Number one was there is no forgiveness without repentance. There is no salvation without surrender. There is no life without death. And there is no believing without committing. When Jesus defines the relationship, and we talked about that too, that we may try to define the relationship that we have with him in certain ways, but we need to look in the text of the scripture and see how he defines that relationship. And so when he defines that relationship, he makes it clear that being a fan who believes without making any real commitment, that's not an option that he gives us. And I started last week by asking y'all uh, this question, are you a follower of Jesus? And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and watch that message or listen to that message. Uh, but I would ask you too, if you weren't here last week, in this moment, in this moment to think about uh, that question now, are you a follower of Jesus, and I hope and I believe that that question in the last uh, six or seven days has caused us to maybe uh, examine our lives a little bit. That maybe it caused us a little discomfort, and it, fo it caused us to focus on where we stand in that relationship uh, with Him. Now, let me tell you this too: that if you are truly a follower of Christ. It is absolutely not my intention to make you doubt your salvation. It's not. It's my hope that, uh, that as we looked last week and as we're going to look today and then as we look in the, probably the next three weeks or so at what separates fans from followers, that you as a believer, as a Christ follower, are going to walk away encouraged in your faith and knowing that you know that you know that you know because you can you can have that assurance of salvation. But I also know that there's probably some people that are here that, that aren't quite there yet, and that's okay for now. For now, that's okay. Some of you, I would imagine, in the last week or so, pondered on it maybe this week, and, and as you, if you were honest with yourself, if you examined yourself a little bit and defined what it is that you have with Jesus it has become clear to you that you're not following him. 
and our prayer for you today is that the Spirit is going to work on you and open up your heart and open up your mind and open up your, your soul to the kind of relationship that He wants to have with you. And my prayer is that you, um, that you discover that relationship now and don't waste any more time, not another minute, with in, in some kind of watered-down, diluted, um, sort of fictitious form of Christianity. And it's not just so that you can experience life to the fullest. I believe that our eternities hang in the balance. Here's what I know. Here's what I know that I know. Is that there is going to come a day when every single human being that has ever lived on the planet is going to stand before a holy God. And that will be the day when many folks who flippantly considered themselves followers of Christ are going to be identified as nothing more than one of these guys that are on the screen. They're just a fan. And Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 7. And I want to say this as a preface again, that I absolutely believe in the assurance of salvation. If you're saved, you're saved. We talked last week about being born again. song we just heard about being born again, which is really being born from above. If you've been born again, I don't believe that you can be unborn again. So let that kind of lay on top of what we talk about today. But I know, too, that the Word says this, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that tells me that i got to stay alert. Like all the time, i got to stay alert. i got to stay watchful. i got to be honest with myself. i got to be aware of, of, of what's going on. i got to be aware kind of of who I am. i got to be looking at my life. i got to be examining myself. We've got to look at the answers that our lives are giving. That we're not headed down the wrong road, maybe without even knowing that we're heading down, headed down the wrong road. I remember one time in the summer of 1986, Susan and I, that's the summer of 1986. Susan, I had hair. I had hair. Had a few pimples, but I had hair. Susan had a lot of hair. Um, she had that little Farrah Fawcett hair thing going on. But we were dating, and we drove up to Washington, D.C. to see my sister and her family. My sister, we took my sister's son to the zoo. He was three years old. And on the way home from D.C., um, we were on I-95. We were coming out of D.C. on I-95. Now, you got to remember, summer of 86, no GPS, no iPhone. We had a paper map. Some of y'all, y'all don't even know what a paper map is. But we had a paper map. Matter of fact, we had an atlas spiral-bound atlas, and we had to find Washington and Virginia and North Carolina and South Carolina on that atlas. So anyway, we're heading out. Somewhere um, along the way, we switched uh, drivers, and Susan was driving. And I got to say this, typically, she's a way better driver than I am. Typically, she is. So we're on I-95, and we're coming out of Virginia, and, and we're, in, we're in Virginia or we're in North Carolina somewhere, and I'm just sitting over on the side uh, in the passenger seat, and I was reading something. I'm sure that I fell asleep because she tells me that I fall asleep. She would never go to sleep if I was driving. But I go to sleep when she's driving. And so I'm sleeping, kind of oblivious, and I woke up. I read a little bit more. And so we were trucking on down the road, and I kind of looked up because I, kinda, I knew that we ought to be somewhere by now near Charlotte. And the next thing I know, I see a sign for Lumberton, North Carolina. Anybody know where Lumberton, North Carolina is? Little podunk nothing little city and the only reason that I know at the time at least New Lumberton North Carolina is in 1986 
a guy named Tim Worley was one of our running backs at Georgia, and he was from Lumberton, North Carolina. So I knew that's where it was. And I also knew that it was nowhere near where we should have been. It's a lot closer to the coast of North Carolina. Matter of fact, we were about 200 miles based on the little legend that's on a paper map, and I measured how far. We were like 200 miles off track because, you see, we weren't, we weren't aware and watchful when we went through Richmond. When you go through Richmond, I-85 splits off, and we were supposed to take I-85. We weren't alert. We weren't paying attention. Uh, and we drove really completely unaware right by the, the exit. We didn't see the signs. We didn't see the markers. And we didn't do it intentionally, for sure. We just, quote, innocently kind of missed it. So for hours, hours, we were completely convinced that we were on the right road, on the right track, completely convinced that we were on I-85, and it never occurred to either one of us that we were going the wrong way. The road that I was on, it felt good. There were no doubt, y'all. There were signs and there were markers and there were things that showed us that we were on the wrong road, but we just didn't pay attention to all that. There were signs indicating that we were on I-95 when we should have been on I-85, and no doubt, the stereo was jamming and we had a cassette tape in. Anybody know what a cassette tape is? So we had a cassette tape. It wasn't an eight track now. It was a cassette tape. And it was Madonna or Cool and the Gang or Van Halen or something. And we were just singing along with the music, heading down the road, oblivious to what's going on around us, just having a good old time. We never allowed for the possibility that we were on the wrong road. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus talks about two different roads that lead to two very different uh, places. Verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus says that many folks take the wrong road. You know, the one that leads to destruction. And only a few take the right road, the road that leads to life. That teaching in Matthew 7 is in the latter part, almost at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount is the, the, longest, um, the longest block of instruction that Jesus provides to us in the Word um, anywhere in the whole Bible. That sermon, the whole thing really, is about raising the level of commitment for those that would follow him where Jesus said in Matthew 5 in, in verse 20 he said unless your righteousness y'all listen to this unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven and I'm like how in the world could my righteousness exceed their righteousness they're the super religious folks they're the super holy rollers but nonetheless Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount he's up in the bar and he tells them a bunch of different things, but he says, he said, you've heard it said that thou shalt not murder, but I'm telling you, don't even get angry. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I'm telling you, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've already done it in your heart. He says, uh, you've heard about this eye for an eye and this tooth for a tooth thing. And he says, but if somebody slaps you right there, you need to turn and give them that right there. He's describing a really narrow road. And so could it be that you think that you're on this narrow road headed towards life, but you're really on the broad one? 
Could it be that the cruise control is set on 70 and Hillsong is on the radio and you're headed down the road of, the, of destruction with a Jesus fish on your car? So I'm telling you that we got to slow down some. We've got to slow down and we've got to slow down long enough to take notice of the signs and the markers and the things that we see and the things that we hear and the things that we feel and ask yourself, is, am I on the right road? Is it possible that you're wrong about being right with God? Jesus goes on in Matthew 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So words, just words, don't get it. He says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, on that day many, he says many, Jesus says many. He, he, he doesn't say few, he says many. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And so they're saying, Lord, look at all this stuff that we've done. Look at all this stuff. We got our, our Jesus shirts on. We got the fish on the bumper. Look at me and look at all the stuff that I've done. And then Jesus goes on in verse 23 and he says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And he's saying that many who think that they're on the road to heaven are going to find out that that's not their destination. Y'all, 1988. Going back to the 80s again. 1988, Summer Olympics. Half of y'all weren't even born in 1988. But in an, I'm going to tell you a story about the 1988 Summer Olympics, the 100-yard, or excuse me, the 100-meter race. Uh, ben Johnson of Canada, he broke out of the starting gate like nobody had ever done in history. The commentator on the TV was screaming, look at Ben Johnson, look at Ben Johnson, look at Ben Johnson. But, and when it was over, the TV dude said that, uh, that he had com just completely shattered. I think it was a pitcher. Yeah, look how far ahead he is. These dudes are fast. All of them are fast. Um, he broke out in this race, which ultimately was a race to, to see who the fastest human alive was. He turned it upside down in a way that had never been seen before. And it was against the greatest field of sprinters that had ever been assembled. The crowd... Uh, in, in that stadium went berserk. The, the other runners came up. They congratulated him. Unbelievable run until it hit the fan. Until it hit the fan. Three days later, uh, they found steroids in his blood. They stripped the medal from him, and they gave the medal to Carl Lewis. And it ain't like Carl Lewis wasn't fast. But Ben Johnson smoked Carl Lewis, but he got busted for the steroids. He goes back to Canada, disgraced. The crowd, though, they didn't know it when he's flying down the track. When he exploded out of those blocks, the people went berserk. When he did his victory lap, he looked like he was a winner. He felt like he was a winner. The only problem was the judges went inside of his body and they extracted what was on the inside out and brought it into the light. And so on that day, many of us who think that we've won are going to find out that we've got to turn our medal in because we went through the wide gate, we went through the wide gate, we stayed on I-95 instead of going in the narrow gate on I-85. And so the question is, will he call your name, will he call your name, or will he strip you of that metal? So y'all, it just makes sense to pull over on the side of the road 
and just ask yourself a couple of questions. I want us to ask two or three questions this morning. Does, number one, does your life, and you got this little fill-in-the-blank thing, does your life reflect what it is that you say you believe? Verse 21 says, not everyone who says, but the one who does. Now, I want you to listen to today's whole message because when I say what I'm getting ready to say, I don't want you to throw something at me. So we've got to listen to the whole message today. Jesus seems here to be using the words says and the word does to distinguish between fans and followers. And we live at a time and maybe in a place in America where it has somehow become okay to separate what we say we believe with how we live. Like that somehow it's okay. We've convinced ourselves that our beliefs are sincere even if they have no effect whatsoever on how we live. Now I know that I know that I know that we are saved by grace through faith when we believe in Jesus Christ and place our trust in him. But biblical belief is more than something we confess with our mouths. It's the confession of our lives. So a fan, a fan may say, Lord, Lord, but a fan doesn't live, Lord, Lord. You say, I'm a follower. And I hear you, but when is the last time that you fed the hungry, that you clothed the naked, that you visited a prisoner? And you say, I'm a follower. Well, that's great. But what do you do when you get in an argument with your wife? Are you the one that grabs her hand gently and says, I'm sorry? What, 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 do you, what do you do when a friend starts to gossip about another friend? Do you jump into that little gossip party or do you say, you know, we don't need to be talking about her or him that way? What do you do when a movie that you're watching continues to take the Lord's name in vain? What do you do? Y'all, a belief is more than just saying some words. Imagine that Susan and I go and we spend we're going to, that, that got the reaction I knew it was going to get, y'all. <laughs> Susan and I are going, going to go, spend a week visiting my son, Zach, and his wife, Kelly. And that's code for we're going to visit little Z, our new grandson, because we really don't care about Zach and his wife anymore. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, we're going, we're going to visit them, right? And, and the neighbors across the street from us have said they've committed, y'all, they've committed to taking care of Rudy that, and you can't tell, but Rudy actually w skied that day on a little slalom board. Um, anyway, that was a, like a totally an aside. Neighbors said they're going to take care of Rudy while we're gone. And so before we leave, Susan gives them a notebook, really a book, with pages and pages and pages of pretty detailed instructions, right, about taking care of Rudy. Tells them that Rudy doesn't do stairs, up or down, Rudy doesn't do stairs. It's terrible for a wiener dog's back. So he doesn't do stairs. Tells them that when he does his, goes outside and does his business, when he comes back in, he gets three green beans. That's the treats that we give him. They're way better for a dog than a dog biscuit, canned green beans. So three green beans after he does his business. She, the book tells them, tells them where, just where to fill up the food bowl too and to make sure that, uh, that you know, that, that the water uh, gets, uh, stays full. Tells him that if it storms outside that he gets freaked out by the storm and he gets up under the couch in the sunroom. And so she's got pages, y'all, of detailed instructions of how they need to live while we're gone. We're coming back. 
But while we're gone, pages of instructions. There will be a day that we come back. So Susan gives them this book, pages of it. And they're like, sure, we're, we're, committed, to, we're committed to it. We will take care of him. Awesome. So we get home a week later, and we walk into the house. And Rudy's nowhere to be found. There's poop all over. There. You're supposed to say poop from the stage. There's poop all over the house, right? The water bowl is bone dry. The food bowl is, is empty. And I can't find Rudy. I go to the back door, and Rudy's on his back dead as a doornail. And so I'm freaked out. This is an imagined story, y'all. This is not true. Ru Rudy's not. I began with imagine, imagine this, y'all. Imagine this. I'm making a point. I'm making a point. Y'all are all like, oh, my God. He's got his dead dog on the screen. No. But I'm freaked out. I walk next door, cross the street to find out what's going on. And before I can say a word, both the neighbors start explaining how helpful the book was, how how great that was. It was really a, a good book. And in fact, they, they, they took certain sections of the book, and I can see where they underlined stuff in the book. They checked each page when they read each page of the book. They circled things in it. They highlighted passages in the book. They told me that they even laid in the bed at night before they went to bed, and they read the book together, and they discussed the book together. They loved it. They had it still up on a shelf uh, in their house. What you reckon I'm going to say to them? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I'm probably going to say, get out my face. But that, the other is what Jesus would have said. Because these people spoke words of commitment. But there's zero evidence that the words meant anything because the words they spoke and what they, quote, believed apparently had zero influence on the way that they lived their lives. So number one, does your life reflect what it is that you say you believe? Number two is this. Do you think that you're on the right road because of what you've done? Do you think that you're on the right road because of what you've done? And so I'm going to tell you, just as dangerous as assuming that what we say alone shows that we're on the right road is the assumption that what we do alone moves us down that narrow road. Look at what the fans in Matthew 7 say. The way they jump up, it's verse 22. They jump up and they defend themselves. They say, look at me, look at me. Look at what I've done. Didn't I? We prophesied in your name. I prophesied in your name. Like, like uh, I cast out demons in your name. I performed miracles, mighty works or miracles in the Scripture. I performed miracles in your name. Their confidence, and they're super confident, right? Their confidence is in their acts and in their good deeds, in what they do. They've earned it. In their minds, no doubt, they've earned it. And I'm going to tell you one of the telltale signs of fanness, of being a fan, is that when we ask, are you a follower, that your mind immediately goes to the fact that you go to church every, every Sunday, that you put some money in the bucket, and that you serve from time to time. Now, it's crazy, y'all, that if you look at the the hypothetical list that Jesus gives us in Matthew 7, this list of do's that these people did, uh, it's, an it's a pretty impressive list. They prophesied. They performed miracles. They cast out demons. Those are big deals. It is an impressive list. As a matter of fact, it mushes my list like a, like a bug. And if they can't get in with their list, there's no way that I'm getting in with my poor, sad little resume. 
And I think in Matthew 7, that's Jesus' whole point. I think he intentionally chooses the biggest, most dramatic, most super spiritual things to use as examples to make one thing crazy crystal clear, and that's this. No matter how much good you do, no matter what you accomplish for the kingdom, that is not what makes you a true follower. And it doesn't mean that accomplishing stuff for the kingdom is a bad thing. It's exactly what we're supposed to do. That is not what makes you a follower of Christ. I grew up my whole life believing that if, if heaven ex existed, if it existed and I acted good enough, that I would be there. And, and, and I'm, I'm almost more convinced every day that half the world, y'all, that is their mindset. They don't even, they have never really thought about it, but, but they figure if I live a good life, if I do good, then I'm going to be in heaven. And you may be sitting out there today. There's no doubt that there are people here that are thinking that same thing. I do this and I do that and I'm a pretty good guy. I, you know, I don't steal. I don't cheat on my wife. I ain't never killed anybody. I'm good. But for me, nobody ever asked me the most logical question is how good is good enough? So I'm asking you if that's your mindset right now, how good is good enough? What's the bar? Like where's the bar? And the reality is there is no good enough. Me and you, our very nature as human beings doesn't allow for good enough. Sinless is good enough. So let me know how the whole I'm going to be sinless thing kind of plays itself out. And if you figure it out and you become perfect, then you can't come to our church anymore because we don't allow perfect people here. Y'all, the only good enough is perfect. Perfect. Flawless. Sinless. And there's only one perfect, and that's Jesus Christ. And so amen is right. And so we've kind of asked two questions. Does your life reflect what you say you believe, number one? And number two, do you think you're on the right road because of what you've done? So we've talked about words, and then we've talked about doing. But ultimately, the question that identifies you, because it's Christ's definition, ultimately, the question that identifies you as a fan or a follower, it isn't what you say or what you do. And those things matter. Y'all, I'm not saying those things don't matter, so don't walk out of here thinking that. That's not. But they matter only to the extent that they reflect the answer to, uh, to our last question, which is, do I know Jesus and does he know me? So at the end of the trail in Matthew chapter 7, it's what it comes down to. It's the dividing line between, um, that Jesus uses between a fan and a follower. Verse 23, he says to the fans, I never knew you. I never knew you. He says it. So it all lands on the relationship with Christ where you know him, and then you are known by him. And I think very, very often, and maybe even in the last week or so, and maybe even so far this week, that you think you hear me putting emphasis on what you say and do. Because those two things are more measurable. They are. Saying and doing are tangible kind of things. We can point to those two things in a courtroom as evidence. But Jesus identifies his true followers, based on an intimate relationship with him. What we say and what we do overflows out of the relationship that we have with him. What we say and what we do are the result, the byproduct, if you will, 
of that intimate relationship. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. It's such a beautiful letter. It's full of joy, full of thanksgiving. I want us to look at chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says here, starting in verse 3. Worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. That means it ain't about what I do. It, it, that, that means human effort doesn't get it. The flesh is, is, is the things that I do. It's who I am physically. What is the stuff that I do? And Paul's saying, put no confidence in that. Verse 4, he says, though I myself have reason, I myself, Paul, I have reason to put confidence in the flesh. If anybody, if anybody thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I got more. That's what Paul is saying. If you think you're bringing something to the table, I'm bringing more to the table. That's what Paul says. He says in verse 5, because he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, Paul says, as to righteousness under the law, as to righteousness based on the legal code, he says he's blameless. He just described his life. Paul just described his life before knowing Christ. And so here he is saying, if anybody could possibly get into heaven by works, by doing something, it would be me. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 7, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This kind of knowledge exceeds knowing about Christ. This knowledge, this knowing exceeds knowing his name. It exceeds knowing about him. It, it exceeds reading the stuff in the Bible about him. It is about knowing Christ himself. He goes on, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says anything that I bring to the table is absolutely nothing compared to knowing Christ. Not that anything that I do is, is meaningless, but as compared to knowing Christ, it's garbage. He says it's rubbish, it's garbage. He goes on in verse 9, and be, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith in verse 10, that I may know him. That I may know him. It's not what you say. It's not what you do. There's no confidence in the flesh. Don't put your hope in, in, in anything that we do, even anything that we do as a church family. And the stuff I talked about a little while ago, M2540 and the new ministry with Assisted Living Center and the foster care, all that stuff, that's good stuff. But when you compare that to Christ, it's garbage. That's what Paul is saying. And you can know him. You can be a follower of his if you know him personally, intimately, face to face. Y'all, Christ is not some somehow removed and distant living back in the centuries or up in the clouds. He is near us. It's called Emmanuel, that is God with us. He is alongside of you. As we walk through the journey of life, He's with us. 
But y'all, we can't know him in this life without the illumination and the teaching of his Holy Spirit. And so ask today, ask the Spirit to shed his clear beams on the face of Christ so you can see him, so you can know him. And I'm telling you, man, don't rest until you know him as your friend. Don't rest until you know him as your Lord. Don't rest until you know him as your Savior. And, they, and you can read without words that you can read the movements of his soul, that you can know in your gut what will please him, and that you'll know in your gut what will hurt his pure and holy nature. You know, know his word. Find him in his word. Spend time with him in his word. Make his thoughts your thoughts. Don't know him like a stranger on the street that you've never met. Dig into the word and you'll find him from page 1, Genesis 1-1, all the way, y'all, to the end. I want to read you something that a, a pastor named Frederick Meyer wrote in 1912. He was a, pap, a, a, a pastor in England. It's beautiful words. He said, to know Christ in the storm of battle, to know him in the valley of shadow, to know him when the sunlight illuminates our faces or when they're darkened with disappointment and sorrow, to know the sweetness of his dealing with bruised reeds and smoking flax, to know the tenderness of his sympathy and the strength of his right hand. All of this involves many varieties of experience on our part, but each of them, like the facets of a diamond, will reflect the beauty of his glory from a new angle that I may know him. So the emphasis, y'all, is absolutely not on saying and doing, but it's on knowing the one who saved you. I say and I do because I know my Lord. I, I, I'm empowered to do because I know my Lord. I say and I do because I want to reflect his glory like the many facets of a diamond, like Pastor Meyer said. And I'm going to count as loss anything that I bring to the table when I compare it to the immeasurable greatness of knowing my Lord and Savior like that. And y'all, I know, I know that I know that I know with full assurance that if I know Him like that, then He knows me. And when that day comes that He's going to say to me, hey man, I know you. I know you. And y'all, you can know Him like that. You can that offer is there all the time. And if you don't know him like that, just let, don't let today go by without doing that. Don't let it go by. And I'm going to ask you to say some words, but it's not the words that do anything. Those words don't save you. Christ saves you. Now, the words may be the confession, but it's Christ dying on a cross for your sin. He saves you. And so I would ask you to consider to let today be the day. And it's, 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 I say this every Sunday, it's not a complicated thing. I repent of my sin. There is no forgiveness without repentance, y'all. I repent of my sin. And I believe, I believe that what happened on that cross takes care of that sin. I believe that. And I invite the Holy Spirit into my life. And then when He comes into my life, I know Him. I know him. I don't just know about him. I know him. It's a deep, 
intimate knowledge. It's a deep, intimate thing. So I'd ask you all to close your eyes, bow your heads, and if that's you today, I just want you to say this simple thing along with me. And I want you to remember, 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 it's not the words that do it. The words can be meaningful to you because you're speaking them, right? But it's not the words that, it's not the words that save you, it's Christ that saves you. But Lord, I repent of my sin. And I believe that you died on a cross to take care of that sin. And Lord, I invite you to fill me up with your Holy Spirit and I am committed to following you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. And look, when you, when you make that commitment to follow him and when you, make, when you invite him into your life, you can't be the same on this side of the cross as you are on this side of the cross. Now, realistically, you may be a little different. You may be a lot different. He may remove all of your temptation all at once, but he probably won't. He probably won't, but the temptation that is in your life in the past, you may be leaning on all kind of junk, but he wants you to lean on him. But the bottom line is if I'm committed, if I believe and I'm committed to follow him, I'm just necessarily going to be different. But I don't want you to set, you, set, set yourself up to fail because the reality is, is it's a journey and it's a sanctification process and he changes us every day. He changes us every day. If you made that commitment today, I'd, I'd ask you to fill out one of those little cards on the seat back in front of you and let us know that happened and put it in the bucket when it comes by or give it to one of the ladies at the connections desk. We've got a prayer team in the back that would love to pray with you. I would love to pray with you. I'd love to talk to you. But they're back there every Sunday, every Sunday, and steeped in prayer, bathing uh, uh, people and issues in prayer. We're a praying church, y'all. We're a praying church. And I invite you to go back there Look, man, we had a women's thing Thursday night here. There was 50 or 60 women, and it was a night of prayer. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. So they would love to pray with you. Let me say one more prayer, and then I'm going to turn it over to Richard. Lord, we love you today. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that you offer us. Lord, the reason that we as a church family... The reason we do anything that we do is because we love you, we want to serve you, and we want to lead people to your cross. At the end of the day, it's not about those things. It's about the leading people to the cross. It's about helping people to find their way back to you and then the commitment to helping them grow. And so, Lord, we would ask that your spirit would stay on this church, on this church family, on the people, on their families, that you would always keep that want to inside of us to serve in your name. Lord, our vision is to see every man, woman, and child in the, in the valley area know you. And so we would ask that your spirit would rest on us to do just that. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen.